Podcastle, episode 273, for August 4th, 2013. Excision, by Scott H. Andrews. Rated R. Contains surgery. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. When I was younger, there was a certain type of character that I always kind of avoided when I was game-playing or reading, that of the healers. I'm not 100% sure why, to be honest. I guess if I could choose a superpower, healing someone else seemed less cool than flying or superhuman strength or a magic ring you could make do almost anything. A mutant healing factor? Yeah, okay, that'd be pretty badass, bub. Lots of damage control when I fly into a berserker rage, but... As far as characters who could heal others, eh, I just wasn't all that drawn into it. And then recently, I read this incredible book, Dreadnought by Sherry Priest. Dreadnought is set in Priest's Clockwork Century series, where an extended civil war has taken its toll even more on the U.S., and gives it the feeling that the wild, wild west is never going to end, which, let's face it, is kind of terrifying, even if you do love westerns. And that's before we get to the zombies. The hero of Dreadnought is Nurse Mercy Lynch. While Mercy makes her way across a country fighting against itself, her expertise will inevitably be called upon while everything's going to hell around her. She's never far from the wounded and dying soldiers left in the war's wake. That's something we don't see a lot in genre fiction, or at least I haven't. And it gives an incredible weight to the violence and action in the story. From her nurse's perspective, for every great, thrilling scene or set piece, Mercy has to deal with the fallout from it all. If bullets fly, her hands will soon be covered in blood, because she's applying pressure to the wounds. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic at all when I say that Mercy Lynch may be one of my favorite female protagonists. Well, today's story is Excision, by Scott H. Andrews, and it deals with healing the wounded from a more magical perspective, but... It's one I think you'll all appreciate. Scott H. Andrews' short fiction has appeared in Weird Tales, where this story was initially published by Anne Vandermeer, also on Spec and Space and Time. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Hugo Award finalist online fantasy magazine Beneath Ceaseless Skies and its Parsec Award finalist podcast. He lives in Virginia with hundreds of books and hundreds of beer bottles from all over the world. Visit his website at scotthandrews.com or find him on Facebook and Twitter. Our reader today is Jen Rhodes of the Anomaly Podcast. We'll talk more about Anomaly later. For right now, pass that scalpel and let's get the patient to the OR. Enjoy the story. Excision by Scott H. Andrews Originally published in Weird Tales, November-December 2007 The young guardsman hobbled out of the gatehouse to meet me, the stag's leg grafted to his left hip tapping on the cobbles. When he spotted my crimson vivomancer's robes, he waved me ahead. Right on, ma'am. Hold, the guardsman's sergeant called. He stepped in front of my palfrey, blocking the way with his right arm, a shaggy bare foreleg that ended in a wide paw. The graft looked old from his smooth movement, and the tufts of bear fur that had spread to his neck. The sergeant shot the guardsman a taut glare. I don't care if someone's wearing robes hammered from yellow gold, 
You still check their writ. The guards hadn't been nearly this strict when I was a novitiate, but that had been nine years ago, before the war. The young guardsman flushed. Your writ, ma'am, if you please. I pulled the dean's scroll from my robes. I'd read it so many times I could recite it aloud. I'd been appointed to the faculty of the Regal Academy. For some reason, they found me worthy to join my famed mentor, Scholas Giazla. I would be developing new grafting techniques that might heal thousands, instead of crawling through a tent from one dying man to the next, mopping up globs of pus, gagging from the stench as fathers and husbands and sons begged me to somehow cure their hopeless infections. After the guardsmen returned my scroll, the sergeant took my palfrey's bridle and led me to the inner gate, past a mounted noble. Thank you, sergeant, I said. He patted my palfrey's neck with his bushy paw. A young lad in those same robes gave me this arm several years back. Every month I toss a pebble in the blessing fountain for him. You ought to offer a few pebbles for the scholars in the academy. They taught that young man how to graft. I'm sure they did, ma'am. But that lad stuck this paw on my stump by moonlight after his lantern burned out. I rode through the silent streets passing only children, mothers, and hunched old men. No aromas of fresh corn or brined ham hock in the market lane, like those I remembered. Only the starchy odor of beets. I'd meant to visit Scholas Giazla four years ago after her daughter was killed in a new-throw offensive. A year later, her husband died when the tower he was rebuilding collapsed, and last month, I wept when I heard that Lane, her only son, had taken mortal wounds on his first day at the lines. In the square below the cathedral, I bought four blessing pebbles from a blind monk and slipped them into the waters of the fountain. All I had left of my dear Amant was a wrinkled letter from the lead vivomancer of his unit. I could recite that scroll from memory, too. I dismounted at the gate to the academy and I peered into the quadrangle. The worn colonnades of sooty stone hadn't changed at all. I felt tiny again, standing next to pillars three hundred years old. How did I belong on the same facility as Skolas Giazla? Vivomancers had long been able to replace amputeed limbs, sealing the graft with a transfer of vita from the donor animal, but most grafts turned septic. My mentor discovered the eddies of necrotia present in all wounds. If the vivomancer removed that infectious energy before the sealing of a graft, the chance of septus plunged. Her invention had saved 10,000 lives, yet the Nuthra hordes still swarmed our borders their barbaric exomancers draining Vita from our wounded to heal their own. The impassive steward checked my scroll. Scholas Giazla left word, ma'am, to call her the instant you arrived. After the loss of her family, my mentor must have been longing to see an old acquaintance. I left my palfrey with a servant and hurried across the quadrangle. Dried leaves rustled over the brick walkways. I mounted the worn marble stairs of the academy hall. The top floor smelled strongly of vinegar and faintly of dead tissue, just as I remembered. I swept past Skolas Giazla's office. She was always in her laboratory.
stray specks of sunlight filtered through the black paper masking of the laboratory windows. The tables were piled with books and dissection pans and jars of translucent solutions that reflected the lamplight in distended waves. The odor of infected flesh hung in the air, stronger than I recalled. A short, wispy figure toddled out from behind a laboratory bench, and I winced. My famed mentor had lost a handspand of height to stoop shoulders and a hump at the top of her back. Deep furrows hung down the sides of her nose, but her eyes still shone with eager intensity. Medi, she said, in that exact same strident voice I remembered. She rushed to embrace me. I patted her gently on the back, below her bony hump. It's good to see you, Scholast. Won't have that. You're ten years graduated, Medi. Call me Lucezia. Very well, Scholast, I said reflexively. She frowned gently as she shuffled back to her bench. Glad you're finally here. I've been expecting you all day. I ought to have come years ago. I'm so sorry about Lane. She stared past me at a picture frame beside the door. The amber wood was carved in a design of rolling waves, with dolphins and mermen frolicking in the surf. But the empty frame enclosed only the rough, bare planks of the wall. Her gaze never left the frame. The youngest apprentice the Rettig's master woodcarver ever took. I remember. As a boy, Lane would sit and whittle in the hallway. She scolded him for scattering shavings across the floor, and I often helped him sweep them up. One day he gave me a tiny bird carved from soft white wood. I wish I'd kept it. Glad you're here. Scholas Giazla said again. I need your help with something I'm working on. Of course, Scholast. Uh, Lucezia. I'll help you in any way I can. But can we sit a moment first? My legs are aching from the stirrups. Her face softened. I'm sorry. I've tea in my office. I followed her across the hallway. Her office smelled dank, like a tent the morning after someone slept in it. The desk lay buried under open books and unrolled scrolls. Scholas Giazla sat, then waved me to a cot along the wall. She thumped the dust out of a second mug and poured two cups of tea from a copper lab flask. Those two infections you cured last month. You read my field report? Those infections. In the desert heat, the stench of septus had steamed off both men so thickly it made my eyes water. They came in on the same day with infections that had spread from failed grafts, one on the back of his shoulder, the other on his hip. I couldn't amputate so closely to the body core, and the infections were too advanced to waste a donor animal on a transfer of vita. I sawed off their grafts, then I drained the necrotia from their stumps so I could seal them with some camel skin. The necrotia was much stronger than in a usual stump. After I absorbed it, the pain was so severe I couldn't sit up. The next morning, both infections had started to heal, and it all made sense. The necrotia I removed wasn't the normal traces from a raw stump. It was the rampant energy from the nearby infections. Scholas Giazla peered at me over her mug. The next time, she knew I must have tried it again. I'd left that out of my report. I couldn't bring myself to write it. A vivomancer with a punctured stomach. 
the necrotia was much deeper. I told Amont I'd only healed those men by accident, but he mustered his angular grin and clutched my hand. He said he knew I could cure his infection. After I failed, he tried to comfort me. But his last smile was forced and hollow. My failure had wounded him far worse than the infection. He died that night. Scalas Giazla gazed past me, her mug dangling from her hand. I took a gulp of my tea. What are you working on? A method to graft to the torso? A cure for septic infection? I jerked back on my rickety cot. If she discovered how to remove infections that had spread to the body's core, she would save another 10,000 lives, which might even end the war. I wish I could help, but I have no idea how I cured those men. You've already made the breakthrough, Medi. Just have to figure out how you did it. I remembered the wounded outside the field station, laid across stacks of dead because the ground was already covered. I didn't feel as though I'd made any breakthrough. Scalas Giazla started asking me about the other two men. I'd already considered the simple connections. Were the graphs attached at the same field station by the same Vivomancer? But her questions were more subtle. Had the men been wounded in the same battle by the same type of weapon? I saw the ideas she was exploring, and I tried to reach beyond them. Soon I was offering questions, too. Scalas Giazla slipped forward in her chair, nodding vigorously. Perhaps I was her colleague after all. With her help, I might figure out my breakthrough and how to replicate it. They were brought in together, I said, but from different units. Time of day, early afternoon. Scalas Giazla jolted upright. Was it hot? It was always hot. But that week, the heat was so severe, three of our camels died. Yes, the stomach wound. Was it hot then? Amont. No, he came in at night. Fever. They all had fever. The first two men were also red and flushed. Their skin felt as hot as sunburn. Scalas Giazla hopped to her feet. Fever helps the body's vita resist an infection. Their body temperature was even higher from the heat. That must have loosened the necrotia from their infections, enough that it pulled away when you drained their stumps. I stood. You have samples prepared? We could reproduce that external heat with a hot water bath. Yes. Scalas Giazla rushed for the door. Knew you could help when I read your report. Glad you took the post. I recommended you. I hid my flushed face as I hurried after her. Now I truly was her colleague. I'd witnessed her previous breakthrough, but this time I'd be provided the key that might lead to another. We started immediately. Scalas Giazla had a series of rabbits she'd infected by treating their grafts with offal. I selected the most advanced sample, a brown-spotted one with a cat-striped forepaw, to perform the control. I closed my eyes and pressed my palm to the rabbit's warm shoulder. I focused on the weak energies simmering in its body, and the spherical image of its vita appeared in my mind. A foreign strand wriggled across the round core, the necrotia from the infection. I reached my mind forward to grab it, but I couldn't get a firm hold. I tried twice with no success. We couldn't use the control animal again, or we would compromise the trials, 
so I extracted all the remaining vita to extinguish the rabbit. The rush of energy swirled in my head. I felt a pang of shame as I remembered the Neutron Examancers and their white shrouds. Those savages had no law forbidding the draining of vita from living beings, even humans. We only used vivomancy to save people's lives. I prepared the first trial with the hot water bath. The feverish rabbit fell unconscious after a minute in the water. Scalas Giazla lowered her knobby hand to its shoulder, above the septic graft. The sinews quivered in her wrist. She finally broke contact with a strangled gasp. The rabbit stirred awake. The red puckered skin above the graft had faded to a hale pink, and the rabbit pawed at the rim of the bath. Breathless hope broke over Scalas Giazla's face. I was so excited I nearly dropped the rabbit as I slipped it back into its cage. Three more trials, including one I performed, all showed the same improvement. We needed to wait overnight to confirm we'd fully remove the infections, but it was still the first ever reproducible excision of systemic septus. We crossed back to her office. Night had fallen outside the window. My chest throbbed from the necrotia I absorbed a pinpoint of agony above my stomach. But with food and rest, I would recover. Scalas Giazla plopped down in the chair. Well done, Maddy, she whispered. Thank you, Lachesia. My first day at my new post, and I'd begun experiments that might save as many lives as hers had. I pulled the curtains closed. Where should we start tomorrow? Scalas Giazla stirred awake in her chair. She'd already fallen asleep. I clasped her bony hand. I'll take you back to the faculty wing. She yanked her fingers through my grasp. No. Of course. Her quarters were still bristling with the memories of her family. How could I have been so callous? You can sleep in my quarters as long as you like. She lurched to her cot. No. I'll stay here to keep an eye on the rabbits. The poor woman had saved thousands but this office and her laboratory were all she had left. I draped the rumpled blanket over her. I'll have the servants leave you a bowl of broth in the hallway. She instantly fell back asleep. I thought her face might ease into the calm I'd seen on healed soldiers. Instead, her crinkled cheeks twitched as she slept. I left word with the night servant, then stepped into the chilly quadrangle. A cluster of novitiates hurried across the sparse lawn, their faces so smooth and oblivious. Now that we had solved my breakthrough, perhaps those young faces would never see a mountain of bodies, blackened and swollen by the desert sun. I stumbled from the faculty quarters at dawn and raced across the quadrangle to the academy hall. All four of the rabbit subjects had improved dramatically. Their swelling was down and their color had returned. I rushed across the hall. Scalas Giazla was still asleep, clutching a woodcut to her chest. The carved relief showed a woman in windswept robes helping a man with a grafted leg rise to his feet. I slipped it from her fingers and set it carefully aside. She sputtered awake, her face ashen. She still hadn't recovered from draining all that necrotia, even a morning later. I helped her to a seat on her cot and described the subjects. Excellent, she rasped. Next trials. I've got a tub that'll hold a man. You want to go straight to a human? 
She planted her hands on the edge of the cot and pushed herself to her feet. Must know if it works. She'd never rushed trials like this before, even for her famous breakthrough. But she'd lost her entire family. We have to test it on a larger animal first. She gave a dazed nod. Right away. I'll help you after I meet with the dean. I didn't get a chance to see him yesterday. Muddy. She stared right at me. Tiny crusts of dried tears hung at the corners of her eyes. This can't wait. I didn't want it to wait. I didn't want anyone else to watch their loved ones shiver and drool for days as Septus finally took them. I didn't want to see Amant's hollow grin anymore every time I fell asleep. I followed Scalas Giazla into the laboratory. It took an hour for the servants to heat enough water to fill Scalas Giazla's tub. In the last row of cages, I found two infected dogs and a ram, all with stubby forelegs grafted from swine. The first dog was so weak, it couldn't sit up in the tub. I turned a bowl upside down in the water for it to rest its head on. Its wide brown eyes followed me across the room. Once the heat had boosted its fever, Scalas Giazla stooped and laid her palm on the dog's shoulder. A sheen of rigid concentration spread over her face. Her wrist shivered. Then she swayed forward and slumped against the water bath. I hooked my arms under her shoulders and I carried her to a chair. When I was a novitiate, she was always darting about the laboratory, helping three or four of us with our grafts at once. Now, as I let her shoulder go, I expected her to tip out of the chair, but she stayed upright couldn't pull it away, wrapped too tight. You try. I will, Lucezia. As soon as I get you back to your cot. She stiffened. No, I'll stay here to help you. She'd been practicing vivomancy longer than I'd been alive. I couldn't argue. I lowered my hand to the dog. The necrotius from the septus writhed around the dog's vita like a vine choking a shrub. The increased body temperature hadn't loosened it at all. Had the infection spread too far for the heat to affect it? I pulled, but the necrotia would not budge. The infection must be too advanced. Scalas Giazla face tightened. Next one. I extinguished the dog, then repeated the trial with the ram. The necrotia was even deeper. I couldn't peel it away. Was the water not hot enough? Had I done some tiny thing differently on the rabbits? Scalas Giazla had dozed off in her chair. I didn't want to wake her without any results, so I extinguished the ram and performed yet another control on a rabbit. It worked, so my approach was sound. I lowered the last dog into the tub. Ripples shimmered across the water from its faint breath. I laid my hand on its chest, just below the puckered swine foreleg. The necrotia was just as tightly entwined. I had to make this work. I pressed my other palm to the dog's flank and I tugged with all my mental strength. My head ached with strain. Amont's dying hand seized my arm again. The necrotia ripped free, tearing loose great hunks of the dog's vita with it. I yanked my hand away. The dog's life winked out right before me. Its head slid off the bull into the water. Why hadn't these trials worked? I worried that I made some foolish mistake, but the control proved I hadn't. 
there was some fundamental barrier to this process in the larger animals. Someone must have left a hundred blessing pebbles for those two men I had cured. They were a fluke we couldn't reproduce. My breakthrough had vanished. I wouldn't save a thousand lives. I wouldn't keep any novitiates from gagging on the stench of war, and I wouldn't save any feverish men from sweaty, agonizing deaths. I was back outside the field station, screening the wounded. Staunch men raised on farms as I had been, pleading with me because they recognized my accent, dying in the sun because I had to treat the officers and nobles first. Scholas Jasla woke with a start. The subjects? I knelt beside her chair. It won't work, Lucezia. It might be their larger mass or their higher volume of surface area. Maybe we can't get close enough to their core energies from our limited area of contact, I don't know. But it's not going to work on anything larger, such as a man. Water isn't hot enough. No, I checked that. You didn't do it right. How could she say such a thing when she'd trained me herself? I explained my additional control. It must work, she sputtered. It worked in the desert. But we don't know why. The protocol couldn't replicate it in larger animals. We need to start again with a new approach. We can't exclude these trials and jump ahead merely because we think it ought to work. She herself had taught me that. Now she was so worn down I had become the instructor. She exhaled a long breath that seemed to leave her shrunken. We could try it together. I jerked away. Multiple vivomancers contacting a subject at once was expressly forbidden by the laws of our discipline. In the unschooled age before the academy, shared contact had killed some vivomancers and left others permanently addled. Absolutely not. Why would she even suggest such a thing? Then we need a better small subject. She staggered to the door and called for the servant. Perhaps a different subject would help us find the limits of this protocol. After Skolas Giazla spoke to the servant, she returned to her chair. Her face looked oddly numb, as though she were asleep, but with her eyes still open. A quarter hour later, the servant rapped on the door. Skolas Giazla shot to her feet. I was subject. A lean woman in a filthy cloak shuffled into the laboratory. In the bundle of blankets clutched to her chest, a baby wailed. The mother thrust her screaming baby at Scalas Giazla. Your footman said you could help my son. Can you? Can you help him? Scalas Giazla looked away as she steered the mother to the laboratory bench. Yes, set him down. Medi? I dragged Scalas Giazla aside. We can't do this. We have no idea if this protocol will work on a human, and you don't have the dean's approval for a human trial. That woman cares about approval. She doesn't care where she'll find tomorrow's food, only if she'll get enough today to keep nursing for another week. You healed those rabbits. This child is no larger. You could do this, Medi. I shivered. The last person who told me that had died before the next dawn. The woman peered at me, her face taut with hope. Can you help my son? Please, Tell me you can. A tiny whimper sounded deep in Scalas Giazla's chest. Yes. I crossed to the bench. The baby's stomach was distended, 
and streaks of red stretched up his chest. His wispy hair was matted with sweat. Scalas Giazla filled the small water bath, and I lowered the baby inside. His skin itched with heat against my fingers. I eased his pudgy arms out of the way and I pressed my hand to his belly. The baby's vita was tiny, no bigger than a fist. The dark, stranded necrotia from the infection thrashed on the surface. I reached for it. The mother sucked breath through clenched teeth. Scalas Giazla bumped my arm, leaning close. I steadied my focus and reached again. The vibrations of the baby's cries pulsed against my hand. I plucked the strand loose and edged it away. The necrotia uncurled from his vita like a string pulled from mud. Then it slithered into my body, constricting inside my chest. I grabbed the edge of the table until the pain subsided. The mother instantly recognized the change in her son's cries. She scooped him wet and naked to her face and swamped him with weepy kisses. Thank you, thank you, she said, thank you. I dabbed at my eyes. You're welcome. He ought to improve even more by tomorrow. The mother emptied her pouch onto the table and shoved it all at me. One gold retig, a worn blessing pebble, a brass corporal's clasp. I'm so sorry there's not more. Scalas Giazla gathered everything back into the pouch. She wrapped the baby in his swaddling, then tucked the pouch inside a fold. I passed him back to his mother. See that he eats. I will. Thank you. The mother bowed repeatedly as she left. Scalas Giazla stared at the door long after it had closed. I stumbled to a chair. It had worked after all. We could cure systemic infection in babies and perhaps small children. The limit for this protocol was the size of the subject. It had certainly worked for that mother. I wouldn't save a thousand lives, but I had saved the one that mattered to her. No one had appreciated my work like that in quite a long time. Thank you, I said to Scalas Giazla, for pushing me. She still clung to the table, her knuckles white. Silent tears dribbled down her cheeks. Lucezia, she turned slowly, as though she'd heard me from far away. Her face shook like she was biting off a sob. I staggered to her and put my arm around her bony shoulders. I'm so sorry Lane is gone. If I could bring him back to you, I would. She flinched. Her head swung up and fixed me with a wan stare. She grabbed my arm so tightly that I fought not to cry out. Then she steered me toward the rear of the laboratory. I followed Scalas Giazla past the empty cages to the dim, cluttered rear alcove. The distant lamplight from behind us glinted off a tarnished brass door. She pushed the key from a dirty scrap of twine around her neck and opened it. A fetid stench hung so thickly in the darkness that I could taste it on the air. She struck a spark to a lantern. The light spilled over a narrow bed holding a gaunt young man. His red splotched cheeks were motionless, but breath still hissed in his chest. Crusted bandages covered the stumps of both his knees, below tufts of coarse fur. His bare shoulder glistened with sweat down to the swollen mass of his right hand. His face was a puffy mockery of the skilled young woodcarver I had known ten years ago. Lane was alive. I felt worse than if he had died.
Scalus Giazla dipped a cloth in a bowl of turbid water and dabbed at her son's forehead, but he barely stirred. They took his legs, she said, her voice warbling. But I wouldn't let them take his hand, his carving hand. I couldn't. Infection spread up his arm, through his chest. Leg grafts went septic before I could get him here. My empty stomach surged up the back of my throat. Then how? How is he still alive? Three weeks later. I didn't know how to isolate the necrotia, so I extracted it along with his vita in small amounts to keep them balanced so the infection wouldn't take him. I grabbed the rim of the doorway to steady myself, killing her own son a bit at a time to keep him alive. An oblivious sheen coated her face, the brilliance I'd aspired to, that I thought I'd achieved just a day before, had vanished from her eyes. She wasn't doing these experiments to save lives or to end the war. She was doing them for herself, to free her son from the horrible decision she'd made. She arranged Lane's bandaged stumps on the stained sheets. I know how to isolate it now, thanks to you. Help me with this trial, Medi. You must. Scholist... He's far too large. It won't work. We must try. It's all he has left. I wanted to help her. I wanted Lane to wake up and to squeeze her hand. I wanted that mask of numb sorrow on her face to dissolve into relief and joy. Perhaps there was something specific to the larger animals that had affected those trials. It had worked on the baby. Wouldn't we eventually need to try this protocol on a man? I'd already saved one mother's son. If I was ever going to save a thousand more, I had to start with Lane. Muddy, she whispered. I swallowed. I'll prepare the water. It took both of us to lift Lane into the tub. His head lolled on the upside-down bowl I had set there for the dog. The bandages from his stumps dangled in the water, trailing dark crimson specks. He groaned as I poured in the steaming water. Not so quickly, Scalus Giazla snapped. I knelt at the side of the tub. I dove past her and took Lane's head before she could ask me to perform this experiment on her only son. His neck throbbed with heat against my fingertips. Scalus Giazla paused a moment, staring through her son. Then she reached both hands to his chest. A muscle quivered in her neck. Her eyes twitched beneath baggy lids. Got hold of it. Need to get closer. Her son shook in the water. I tightened my grip. My palm pressed flat on his neck, and energies gushed into my mind. His vita glimmered like a sheet of fading embers. A thick, foreign strand trailed from the core. I snatched my mind from his body. I felt sick that I had violated the first law of our discipline, even by accident. But the infection's necrotia was already peeling away. Did we actually have a chance? Scalas Giazla's hand slipped on her son's chest. She was losing contact. She ought to have loosened the whole strand by now, but she wasn't strong enough to excise it. I should have done the experiment. 
I'd let her do it, but not because it was her son and her idea to press ahead. Because I was scared. Because I thought I would fail again. Because I didn't want to see another harrowing grin in my sleep. I couldn't let Scala's Jasla fail in my place. I grabbed Lane's neck with both my hands. The foreign strand still trailed from the faint core. It looked thinner now. So Scala's Jasla must have drawn most of it off. But she'd run out of strength. I grabbed the strand with my mind. It split away from the core in a burst of energy. I fell backwards, and Lane's head plopped onto the upside-down bowl. Had we saved him? My mind swelled with euphoria. Strangely, I felt no pain from the necrotia I'd excised. Scalus Giazla collapsed behind the tub. Her arms flopped at her sides as I rolled her over. Her face was a pasty gray. She must have extracted nearly all the necrotia before I'd entered her son's body. I crawled back to the tub. Lane's cheeks were still splotched with red. Spittle still oozed from the corner of his mouth. Even with such a severe infection, we should have seen some improvement. He looked as though we hadn't removed any necrotia at all. What of that foreign strand? A dry moan sounded at the base of the tub, and Scalas Giazla wheezed for breath. That foreign strand had been her vida, and the entire faint core was the infection's necrotia. She couldn't remove it, so she'd tried to keep Lane alive by giving him her own Vida. And I dripped it away. I killed her in the most vile and barbaric manner any Vivomancer could imagine. It didn't matter that she was sacrificing herself. I was trying to save her son and Enmont and those rural soldiers and a thousand other men I'd never met. And myself... I'd completely forgotten about her. I leaned over the rim of the tub and vomited into the steamy water. Lane, Scalas Giazla croaked. Hope flickered across her face. I wiped my mouth and forced a smile. His color's already returning. She sighed, and the gray pallor ebbed from her cheeks. Then her eyes went glassy, and a last breath escaped her lips. I reached down to Lane. Pitiful gasps scraped in his chest. I had to end his agony. But I couldn't violate another law of our discipline, no matter how horribly he was suffering. So I slipped the upside-down bowl from under his head. The water covered his face and flecks of my vomit floated over his nose. Bubbles rose from his breath, but only a few. I held his hand as he died. His mother had tried everything to save him. She must have known that even a transfer of all of her own Vida wouldn't cure his infection, but she'd hoped against what she knew. I had to. The servants wrapped Scalas Giazla and her son from head to toe, then sent for the city embalmer's wagon. I wrote a report of her final breakthrough, a cure for systemic septus in small children. It wouldn't save any men, 
but it would save thousands of babies so they could grow into men and die on the battlefield. Or perhaps one of them would become a vivomancer and discover how to remove systemic infections from adults. I hoped so. I left the report with the dean, along with my letter of resignation. On the morning of Scholas Giazla's state funeral, I rode out of the city. I didn't deserve to stand in the cathedral beside her body when I was the one who'd ripped out her life. At the east gate, the sergeant with the bare arm was again in command. He pulled my palfrey from the line of carts and escorted me through. Is the academy posting you outside the city, ma'am? No. Actually, I'm headed back to the lines. Keep your head low out there. I always do. I'll toss a pebble in the fountain for you tonight as well, ma'am, if you don't mind. Thank you. No, I don't mind. I don't mind at all. Could I become the sort of vivomancer a soldier would remember every month with a blessing pebble? Perhaps the way to save a thousand lives was to treat each man as the sergeant's vivomancer had treated him, applying practiced knowledge with fearless persistence. If it took that... I would never save half as many, but I could try. And welcome back. Gives kind of a different perspective on that old saying, physician heal thyself, doesn't it? Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we talked more about our narrator, Jen Rhodes' podcast, Anomaly, Here's a promo for you to check out. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly Podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant Golf Clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by jewelbeat.com. Thanks, Jen. Sounds like Anomaly might be the right prescription for quite a few of us. Feedback this week is for Levitadar's Western Chow Mein Red Dawn, read by Bob Eccles. This was a Western set in Asia, and it didn't find too many fans on our forum, unfortunately. 
Cutter McKay said the problem with the story was the lack of any real try-slash-fail cycles. Yes, there's one at the beginning when the boy attacks the villain and is defeated, but after that, he grows up, meets Shanghai Joe, finds the mine, yeah, it gets captured, but it feels like that was his plan, easily picks his handcuffs, grabs the villain without any challenge, and then kills him, blows up the mine, and leaves. Nothing's challenging to him in any way. Flint Knapper said, I love this piece. I will admit the story was so-so, but the setting was incredible. It was like steampunk, but with the magic elements brought to the forefront. This was definitely a fantasy piece and a great fit for Podcastle. The narration was solid. By the end, it was almost a parallel with the Boxer Rebellion, which is a period of time I really find fascinating. Now I'm not going to try to claim to be an expert on either Chinese or British culture, but this piece sucked me in. Thanks for running it. Oh, thank you. Probably the more interesting discussion was the response to Hobson's intro, which discussed Tadar's brief tweet, Steampunk is fascism for nice people. I'm not going to go too deep into it because we're already running late, but there were some seriously interesting posts by Electric Paladin, Infinite Monkey, and Scattercat, who said, I don't think Tadar was saying that the Victorian era was particularly awful, but rather that steampunk as a genre tends to take the moneyed English gentry as its heroes and models without addressing the horrible shit that went on to keep them moneyed. Sort of like pulp stories from the 30s were big on explorers and brave adventurers without addressing the part where white dudes were shooting brown dudes and stealing their national treasures, basically because they could. Alright, this is Dave again. Something which I find personally interesting about Tadar is that he's also the author of at least three steampunk books himself, the Bookman Trilogy. So please, people, someone come up with fan art for the cover of Tadar's new collection, Fascism for Nice People. Thank you very much for all those comments. Please head on down to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like this story, or at least like what we're doing here at Podcastle, please, please, please consider dropping a few blessings our way in the form of monetary donation. Here's the deal, folks. And not to put too fine a point on it, but we need your help. We need money. Otherwise, we can't continue to do what we do, which is to try to bring you the best fantasy fiction we can into audio labs week after week. Your money pays our authors and helps keep us going. Thank you sincerely. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a story by Greg Van Eekout, who's going to get some robots in our science fantasy. We'll see you all then. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming with a few quick announcements. For those of you who don't recognize the sound of my voice, this is Paul Herring, publisher for Escape Artist Incorporated and the resident accounting money monkey. You may have heard me narrating a handful of Escape Pod stories as well as my own fiction, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to talk about Poddisc and to ask you all a favor. You might remember a little thing we had called Poddisc. 
That was where we held our archives of past episodes of Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and Podcastle, as well as many others. We had to shut it down in 2011, but now, Poddisc is back. We have a new staff manning the helm, we've reorganized our system, and are even getting new t-shirts for sale as well. So, Poddisc is back, rocking and rolling, and open for business. Please check it out at poddisc.com. And now, the favor. We're very proud of what we've accomplished in the years since Steve founded this little experiment, but we're also trying to grow, to reach out, and bring more eager listeners into the world of free weekly genre fiction. We're looking at a lot of things right now, in particular, the website. Or rather, websites. We want to hear from you about all of our .org websites. We're looking about how the actual websites and blogs present to you all, and while we do see some things... We don't see them all. That's where you guys come in. So, whether you only go to PodCastle once a month, or spend every minute of every day on all three sites, or have never even been to the sites at all, we encourage you to head over to the sites at escapepod.org, pseudopod.org, and podcastle.org, and let us know what you like, and, of course, what you don't. There's a forum thread set up on the Escape Artist listings under the Administravia section in the main forum, too. If the forum is not where you want to send your feedback, then please feel free to email me at paul at escapeartists.net. Just please make sure to put website feedback as the subject. All constructive feedback is welcome and encouraged. So, that covers about everything. Thanks for your time and thank you in advance for your help and continued support as we continue our work to bring you the best in genre short fiction. And now... Back to your regularly scheduled programming. Atul Gawande said, We look for medicine to be an orderly field of knowledge and procedure, but it is not. It is an imperfect science, an enterprise of constantly changing knowledge, uncertain information, fallible individuals, and at the same time, lives on the line. There is science in what we do, yes, but also habit, intuition, and sometimes plain old guessing. The gap between what we know and what we aim for persists, and this gap complicates everything we do. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you guys next week.